Well, good morning. If you could take out your Bible and turn it to that passage in Mark. And um, uh, I've got my mug. I might have a stool pretty soon. And so this is my transition from cool preacher to really cool preacher. <laughs> I'm going to be awesome. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm a little under the weather, uh, and earlier my voice was cracking uh, like a time in my life that I like to forget, and so because of that, I'm going to go ahead and, and pray. And God, would you show forth your strength in my weakness? Would your power be made present in the proclamation of the gospel, weak that the voice may be? May we hear from Jesus, whose voice ever remains strong on our behalf. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, happy Easter. It is... Uh, Still Easter, did you know that? Eastertide is a seven-week celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it's just too big for one day, so happy Easter. It's also the start of a new series today. We're starting a new series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're starting um, at the end, at the, at the Easter story, because why not? It's Easter. And it's an often neglected uh, story. It's an often, uh, it's a very neglected Easter account. Most of the time, if you were to go to a church on Easter, people would preach out of Luke or John. They'd preach out of Matthew, but, but they don't preach out of Mark too often. And it's, it's not to, um, it doesn't take a, a rocket science to figure out, a scientist to figure out why. I mean, this text is very elusive, and it raises lots of questions. I mean, the first question that we have to come to when we come to this story is, where does it actually end? You'll notice if you look down into your, your Bibles, your English Bibles there, you'll see in really big, bold uh, print and big font right after verse 8, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And that's right. The earliest and best manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And so I, with most New Testament scholars, believe that Mark's gospel ends at verse 8. That chapter 16, verses uh, 9 through 20 do not belong in Mark's gospel. That they were added later. Why? Well, that's... That's not hard to figure out either. Because if you're reading this, I mean, you find that the end of the gospel ends like this. And they went out and fled from the tomb and were trembling and astonished. And astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Why end your gospel there? I and mean, why end your gospel with the first witnesses coming to the tomb and being silent and afraid? 
And Mark, he doesn't end his gospel with, uh, he doesn't end his gospel with no resurrection appearance of Jesus. We have no reconciliation with Peter. We have no commissioning out into all the world to preach the good news. We don't see the gospel moving forward out into all the world. We, we, uh, we, we don't have the Holy Spirit falling like we do in Luke-Acts. I mean, what are we left with? We're left with an empty tomb, fear, and silence. Why in your gospel there? What kind of good news, story that is proclaimed to be good news, ends with the abrupt and enigmatic words, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid? But you see, I think that, I think that this ending actually gives us a picture into the character of Mark as a whole. It's a window into his genius. And so I want to I wanna probe this. I want to probe this question. Why does Mark end his gospel here? And the first thing to note is why he doesn't end his gospel here. He doesn't end his gospel here because he doesn't believe the resurrection occurred. Mark believes the resurrection occurred. Mark is highly, it's a highly literary crafted piece of literature, which is one of the reasons why I love it so much. And we find, for instance, in verse 1, this irony. Verse 1 tells us that the women brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. But of course, Mark already told us in chapter 14 that Jesus was already anointed for burial. And so this act that they're doing is superfluous. We know that it's superfluous and, and, uh, and the irony of it, Mark, um, Mark highlights, he brings to a point in the next verse. Look at verse 2. It says, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. It's, um, it's a potent motif in the gospel. It's a potent motif throughout the Bible. That weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. That, that the morning, that is when God rises up to save his elect. And that morning is when God had risen up to save his elect one, Jesus Christ. You shall go forth with joy, for the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. When the sun had risen, it was too late. Verse 6, he is not here, he is risen. It's not that Mark does not believe that Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. He absolutely believes that. Well, then why does he end here? We say, well, maybe he didn't know the end of the story. And it's all he knew. But who is Mark? This character that we're going to be looking into. Well, the best evidence, our best understanding of who Mark is comes from the second century with a bishop named Papias. Papias died around 135 AD. Papias knew the apostles well. And Papias tells us that Mark, John Mark, was Peter's secretary and translator. That, that he wrote down the words of Peter, the memories of Peter. 
And in fact, it's interesting that we see Peter appears more in this gospel than in any of the other gospels. You can't go anywhere in Mark without finding Peter there. Because what we have here is an eyewitness account from Peter. And Peter, he did know, and he did have an experience of the resurrected Christ. And so it's not that Mark doesn't know the end of the story, because Peter knew the end of the story. So why does he end here? Well, let me give you four reasons. He doesn't end for historical reasons. He ends here for theological reasons, for literary reasons. He ends to make a point. And the first thing he does, to, uh, the reason why he ends here, is he ends here to show us that the story is not over. The Gospel of Mark begins, if you turn back to the very beginning of it, it begins with these words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning, the beginning, the beginning. And it's only the beginning. But it is the beginning. And Jesus, he marches into the scene and he starts preaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom has been inaugurated. The kingdom has been launched, but the kingdom has not been consummated. Sin and death have been defeated, but sin and death are still present. You see, Mark is, is saying that the story is not over. That, that he plants us in this, this place when we end the gospel, that we are there in between the empty tomb and the promised appearance of Jesus in Galilee. And isn't that where we sit? We've sat there since he rose from the dead. We've sat there in between the empty tomb, his rising from the dead, and his promise coming again. And Mark wants us to know that the story is not over. And it's our failure to realize this that bedevils us in all our quest, our futile quest for perfectionism in life. If we could just get this, the story is not over. You see, some of us, I am an incessant complainer Hi, I'm Kyle. I'm an incessant complainer. And the reason why I'm an incessant complainer is because I'm looking for perfection. And don't we all? We want the perfect job that suits us just right, where all our gifts are being utilized, where we're never bored, that has just the right amount of challenge, that's not too stressful has the right benefits and pay, the right amount of time off, the right team. We want the perfect job. We want the perfect church. You know, that one that's um, big enough, that is able to offer you all the ministries that you want to do, but small enough where it feels intimate and connected and you're close with everyone. You know that church, right? Yeah, it doesn't exist. <laughs> and so we bounce from one church to the next. We want the perfect pastor. And I'm sorry I've disappointed most of you. But you know what I know? I know that a lot of you didn't like the pastor before, and you're not going to like the pastor after. Because <laughs> you're looking for Jesus, and guess what? He's not here. 
We want the perfect spouse. That's why we're holding out. We're always bitter. We're always looking. Oh, man, if, 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 if my spouse could just be like so-and-so. We're looking for perfection. We're looking for heaven. We think the story's over, but it's not. And, um, and let me be clear. It's good that you want heaven. It is good that you want heaven. God has set eternity in your heart. But you're trying to find heaven on earth and the fullness thereof at this point in time, well, it's making you and a lot of other people miserable. I have one dress belt and uh, because I live in Santa Barbara and you don't have to dress up very often. And so I have to wear it with my, my suits and I wear them for weddings and things like that. And, uh, and I had these two weddings coming up in November and I was like, where's my dress belt? So I'm looking all over the house for my dress belt, right? I have one dress belt and I got to find it because I, I can't not wear a belt. So I'm looking and I'm going like, I'm taking all the drawers are like undone and then I put everything back in. I am looking through all Pam's drawers. Did you take my dress belt? I'm looking through Neve's drawers, you know, like Denise dolls have on my dress belt. Where is my dress-up belt, right? I'm looking everywhere for it. I've got, the, I've, got all, I've got suitcases out that we haven't used in a decade. I've got, I'm going through the attic. I'm going through everything. And I literally, I probably spent, I don't know, five hours, like, total of my life was like scouring our house under the couch, under, you know, under the TV, everywhere. I'm looking everywhere in the garbage. And uh, like, I looked all around our cars. I was looking everywhere. You know where my dress was? It was in Memphis, Tennessee, <laughs> right? I was, I was like swasting all this time looking for something that was nowhere near the vicinity. And it wasn't going to be there. And it didn't matter how much I looked, I was not going to find it there. Listen, no matter how much you look for perfection on earth, this side of the new heavens and the new earth, you are not going to find it here. And so Mark ends here so that we might realize that we can be content with our holy discontentment. That perfect is not going to happen until Jesus comes again. And, and, and while we experience and we taste and we have foretaste of the kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth, yes, the kingdom has been inaugurated. It has not been consummated. And so there's going to be a holy restlessness in you. That's the first reason Mark ends here. The second reason Mark ends with this abrupt, re, uh, abrupt ending is to show us not only that the story's not over, but he does it to show us that Jesus cannot be contained. You know, the gospel of Mark begins by announcing that this is the good news about God's Son. But then if you read through it, the ironic thing about it is the only characters who recognize Jesus as such are the demons. Jesus, his, 
And any time anybody tries to understand who he is, they, they, they're continually baffled. They're, 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 they're totally flummoxed. The disciples, as they're presented in Mark, are continually confused by Jesus. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to make of him. He doesn't, he doesn't line up with any of their categories. His identity and presence remains elusive. In fact, so much so that like, like, uh, Jesus, he, like Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And then he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples start looking at one another in chapter 8, and they start going, did we forget the bread? Did we forget the bread? Are we going to be able to eat? And Jesus is like, you numbskulls, I'm not even talking about that. And I just, I just fed 5,000 people, right? Like, what are you worried about food for? And he says to them in 821, do you not yet understand? And they don't. Except when Jesus asks the disciples in the same chapter, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Messiah. And finally, we think somebody's got it. They've got it. They've got it in the story. And you know how Jesus responds? In Mark, it says, and the Greek says very literally, he rebuked them so that they would tell no one. Finally, it seems that somebody's got it. And then Jesus undermines the answer. And then he goes on a teaching program, teaching them that every preformed category that they have about the Messiah will not work, will not fit with him. And you get this sense that <coughs> any answer to the question, who do you say that I am, is always inadequate. Because Jesus, he breaks our categories. He is too big for us. We don't have a line on him. Any, anything that we try, the way, when we try to get at who he is and his identity, it remains elusive because it's just too big for us. And we see that even at the end here. In verse 6, the angel says to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. And the English translation says, Who was crucified? Not a good translation, I don't think. It, it, it's, it's actually more like a title. The crucified one, or the one who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. So how do you have a risen Messiah who is still crucified? Crucifixion remains intrinsic to his identity even after the resurrection. The resurrection didn't overturn the crucifixion. It vindicated it. This is the fundamental identity of who Jesus is. He is the crucified one. Who has categories for that? He remains elusive. He remains bigger than you think. You know, uh, I, had a, I had a friend who hated cherries. He hated cherries. He would never eat cherries. And then we were in Florida one week. I was at this conference. And I got to the end of the week. And this guy had eaten like 700 cherries. And you're like, what changed? Why'd you eat 
700 cherries. I mean, this was the guy that was adamant. I do not. Oh, we're good. <laughs> he was adamant. He was like, I do not like cherries. And, uh, and then I said, I thought you didn't like cherries. And he goes, well, then I realized that cherries don't just come in that red sauce that are really small and bright red that like, like they come in like raw and they're really dark uh, red and they're sour and these things are delicious. And he's like, while he's saying this to me, he has like a bag of cherries, right? And he's like, you know, he had a preformed idea of like cherries are like this and I don't like them, right? And then he realized that like cherries are much more expansive than your preformed categories, you don't have a line on cherries, so maybe, maybe you might like cherries. See, some of you, you're here, and you think, I know what this Christianity thing's all about, and I know what this Jesus is all about. I grew up in religion. Listen, you don't have a line on Jesus. He will expand. He will break. He will explode your categories. You cannot put him in a box. You cannot contain him. He is bigger than you think. His power is bigger than you think. His love is always better than you think. His presence is more satisfying than you could ever imagine. And you will never be able to fully comprehend him. He is the Lord of the universe. And even after the resurrection, he remains elusive. Because he does not subject himself to you for your examination and scrutiny. No, you are subject to him, his examination and his scrutiny. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, the angel says. He is not here. You can't pin him down. He allowed himself to be pinned down once, and that was for your sin, not for your examination. He does not subject himself to you. He is the Lord of the universe, and he calls you to follow him. Jesus is bigger than you think. He is more comprehensive than you think. And he is on the move. Once affixed to a tree, now at large in the world. He is on the move. And he is out there. I, uh, Pam and I are fans of all things British. And we love the, um, the uh, Sherlock movies. You know? And if you haven't seen the last season, too late. Um, so in the last season, <laughs> in the last season of Sherlock, I mean, you've had time, right? <laughs> so in the last season of Sherlock, we find, we're introduced to Sherlock's sister and Sherlock's sister is like wicked smart and powerful and way more smarter than, you know, way more smarter. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that's good grammar. <clears throat> Way smarter than Mycroft or Sherlock. And, uh, and there's this one point where they're breaking into this, where they're in this high-security prison. And they're in this high-security prison to see, um, to see the, the sister. And they go down to where she's supposed to be kept. And all of a sudden, they realize she is out. She is at large in the world. And her power is too great for them to be able to contain her. 
you can't contain Jesus. You can't put him in a box. He is at large in the world, and he is bringing his kingdom. And you can either, you can either join him, but you cannot beat him. He will have his day. His rule, his reign, his, it will come. It will come. And Mark wants us to know that. Third, Mark ends here with this abrupt ending to show us also. Ethnic Kyle, I'm a new member now, and you have no water left. Oh, thanks. Great. Um, and he comes, uh, thirdly, to show us that following Jesus always entails following him into the unknown. This is the reason why he ends so abruptly. If you were to look at the Gospel of Matthew and you were to ask, what is discipleship like? The picture that you would get is that discipleship is um, listening to the teaching of Jesus, hearing the teaching of Jesus, comprehending that, and then going and living it out. And uh, Matthew is kind of like you go into a classroom, and you go into the classroom and you understand everything, and then you go out and it's just like put it into practice. That's why the Gospel of Matthew is divided in these five teaching sections, and Jesus is constantly teaching. But you know, in Mark, Jesus doesn't teach at all, ever. The only teaching he does is in parables, these cryptic stories. And in Mark, if you get a picture of discipleship, discipleship is not learning what to do, knowing everything ahead of time, and then going out and putting it into practice. In Mark, it's putting one foot in front of the other and following Jesus into the dark. Mark, it's more like being caught up on a battlefield and the general says, follow me. And you might not know everything that's going on, but you know that you've got to follow this guy's footsteps. And as you follow him, you start learning what it's all about. That's Mark. And, and so... And so let me ask you, what is your experience of discipleship more like? Is it more like Matthew, where you've learned about the Christian faith and life, how to live in the world, how to conduct yourself, how to conduct your tongue, how to conduct your relationships, how to conduct your family, uh, how to relate to the church, and then you go and do that and enact that? Or is it more like Mark, where you feel like Jesus is calling you into these new uh, areas and ventures, and you're just, you're not sure what you're doing next, but you just know that he's calling you there. Well, it's both, isn't it? Isn't it both? It's both. And, and Mark, he highlights the latter of those two. That when you follow Jesus, it is always a following him of trust, where you don't know what is around the corner. Brennan Manning talks about discipleship like this in his book, Ruthless Trust, that gets at what Mark is getting at. The way of trust is a movement into obscurity, into the undefined, into ambiguity, not into some predetermined, clearly delineated plan for the future. The next step discloses itself only out of a discernment of God acting in the desert of the present moment. The reality of naked trust is the life of a pilgrim who leaves what is nailed down, obvious and secure, <coughs> and walks into the unknown without any rational explanation to justify the decision, 
or guarantee the future. Why? Because God has signaled the movement and offered it his and offered in it his presence and promise. When you start to follow Jesus, he will call you to places that you never thought you would go. He will call you to take on responsibilities that you never thought that he would call you to take on. He will call you to love people that you never thought that you would have to love. He will call you to make sacrifices that you never thought that you never planned on making. He will call you to a new job or moving that you never expected. When you follow Jesus, he will call you places that you don't know. But what you do know is you know the one who calls and you know that he's got you and he holds the future. And that's enough. Um, The only TV show that I've ever actually wanted to be on besides the NBA, but (laughs) then I stopped growing at five, eight and a half, and I stopped desiring that. But the only TV show that I still desire to be on is The Amazing Race, because it is amazing. And it's the best reality show ever. And the reason is, is like, you know, you're going around the world. The premise is you go around the world and you have these different clues that you're given along the way. And the clues take you to the next place. And when you start off, you know that you're going to get back. You start off in America, you know you're going to get back to America. But you don't know the route that it's going to take you and all that you're going to go, uh, you, all you're going to do from here to there. All you know is that you are going to be given enough for the next step. Enough food enough sleep, enough money for the next step. Following Jesus is like that, Mark is saying. He gives you enough for the next step. And we see that here in this resurrection account. These women have an empty tomb, and they have the proclamation of an angel, and they have the promise, he will meet you in Jerusalem, or he will meet you in Galilee. And that's enough. That's enough to keep moving forward. That's enough to keep walking forward. So believers, Jesus has given you enough to follow him and to sacrifice and to make those steps. And I don't know what your future is going to look like. I don't know the next steps. But I know that he's with you. And I know that he has you. Unbelievers, some of you have been here and you've been coming here for a while. And, and you're investigating Christianity, but you haven't moved from an inquirer to a disciple. And one of the reasons why you haven't moved from an inquirer to the disciple is because you think you have to know everything, you think you have to have all your questions answered. But discipleship and following Jesus is not about him answering every one of your questions. It's about him giving you enough. And you have enough. You have an empty tomb. You have enough. You have an eyewitness account. You say, well, maybe that's made up. But this, this is way too counterproductive, as Richard Bauckham says. 
New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham, this is way too counterproductive of a narrative to be made up. Why would you make up a story that you end and they were afraid? Why would you make up a story where the key witnesses are women who, in the ancient world, a woman's eyewitness was not actually considered valid? So why don't you write men into the story here if you're making up the story? Well, the reason they didn't write men into the story here is because men weren't there. It wasn't true. It's true. There's an empty tomb. And so you have enough. You have an empty tomb. And you know what else you have? You have the promise of forgiveness. Look at verse 7. The angel says, Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. See, why would you follow him? Because the Jesus who rose from the dead, he left this message behind. Go tell those disciples, the ones who denied me, the ones who abandoned me, go tell them that I'll be waiting for them in Galilee. And make sure you tell Peter too, the one who denied me three times. Make sure you tell him because there's welcome and forgiveness and acceptance and embrace and grace. You have enough. You have an empty tomb in the grace of God. What else do you need? You have enough to make a decision to follow him. So this is the question, will you follow him? Which brings me to the last point. The last reason why Mark ends his gospel so abruptly and ends it right here is to confront you and I with a decision. You see, throughout this gospel, Jesus is constantly silencing people. The demons are characters. Demons aren't really people. The demons uh, call out to him, and they say he's the Son of God. And in 134, we read that he would not permit the demons to speak. He silences them. He heals people. Like he takes the blind man outside of the village in Mark chapter 8, and then he says, don't go back into the village and don't tell anyone. He silences him. When his disciples say, you are the Christ, he silences them. He says, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody what you've seen and heard. He's continually silencing people because the time is not ready. They're not, the time is not uh, yet. The time was not ripe for them to disclose who he was. And finally, we get to the place in the story, the first time where someone is not silenced, where they say, go tell the disciples and tell Peter. And what's their response? And they were silent. Up until this point, everyone has been silenced. And finally, when someone's tongue is loosed, they refuse to speak out of fear. And it puts the question on you and me. What about you? Will you speak? Or will you remain silent? Will you follow him? Will you go with him? This confronts us with a decision, but it's also an invitation. It invites us into the story. 
I said it earlier. Verse 6 says, he is not here, he is risen. There is an empty tomb. Verse 7, go tell Peter and the disciples he's going before you to Galilee, and there will you see him. There's the promise of his presence, and that's exactly where we stand. And that's exactly where Mark's readers sat. And Mark wants to say, this is an invitation to you to enter into this story, to go to Galilee. Galilee in the Gospel of Mark is a, it's symbolic for discipleship. Are you going to follow him? Because that's the only way that you're going to see him, is if you follow him. That, that, that this is a self-involving story. And you can't actually know Jesus and know his promise unless you start to follow Jesus and trust his promise. And then you start to read the gospel over again from the beginning and you realize, and, you start, and it's an invitation to see yourself in it as one of his disciples. So what about you? Are you going to enter in as we go through this book? When I was a kid, I, um, we, went to, we went to Disney World uh, that's in Florida, for those of you who don't know. And Disney World has a ride called Space Mountain. And Space Mountain, um, everyone coming off of Space Mountain looked like they had the funnest time in the whole world. And I wanted to go to Space Mountain so bad. But to go to Space Mountain, you had to like enter in these dark doors and then you get in the first room and it's really dark and you don't know what's next and you like weave around the stuff and then you get into a uh, you get into a roller coaster thing and they wind you up to the top and it freaked me out so like i would get you know into the through the front i would get up to the front door and then i would be gone and then the next time i got in the front door and then i'd turn around and leave and then I'd get a little bit further and I'd go. And, and the thing is, though, is that, but I always wanted the experience. I said, like, I, I don't want to go through all this stuff, but I want to have that, that, like, I want to have that joy and happiness and, you know, and have, like, my cotton candy in my face and all that that these people had at the end of the ride. I want that experience. How do I get there? But the only way to get there was to actually go through. You had to walk through. You had to follow the path. And the only way to know the presence of Jesus, to see him, to, to, to experience his resurrected person, is to follow the path. It's to go through. It's to put one step in front of another. And you have enough to do it. Let me pray. God, as we... <clears throat> enter into the story of Mark, we ask that you would make much of Jesus and that we would get wrapped up in the story and that you would call us as well and we learn what it means to follow you with radical abandon. For Christ's sake, amen.